Book One, Part Two of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. Histories, Volume One by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by A. D. Godley. Book One, Part Two. Paragraphs 16 to 36. Ardis reigned for 49 years and was succeeded by his son Sadiates, who reigned for 12 years, and after Sadiates came Aliates, who waged war against Dioces' descendant Cyaxes and the Medes, drove the Cimmerians out of Asia, took Smyrna, which was a colony from Colophon, and invaded the lands of Cladzomini. But he did not return from these as he wished, but with great disaster. Of other deeds done by him in his reign, these were the most notable. He continued the war against the Milesians which his father had begun. This was how he attacked and besieged Miletus. He sent his army, marching to the sound of pipes and harps and bass and treble flutes, to invade when the crops in the land were ripe. And whenever he came to the Milesian territory, he neither demolished nor burnt nor tore the doors off the country dwellings, but let them stand unharmed. But he destroyed the trees and the crops of the land, and so returned to where he came from. For as the Milesians had command of the sea, it was of no use for his army to besiege their city. The reason that the Lydian did not destroy the houses was this, that the Milesians might have homes from which to plant and cultivate their land, and that there might be the fruit of their toil for his invading army to lay waste. He waged war in this way for eleven years, and in these years two great disasters overtook the Milesians, one at the Battle of Limoneon in their own territory, and the other in the Valley of the Meander. For six of these eleven years, Sadiates, son of Ardis, was still ruler of Lydia, and it was he who invaded the lands of Miletus, for it was he who had begun the war. For the following five the war was waged by Sadiates' son, Aliates, who, as I have indicated before, inherited the war from his father and carried it on vigorously. None of the Ionians helped to lighten this war for the Milesians except the Chians. These lent their aid in return for a similar service done for them, for the Milesians had previously helped the Chians in their war against the Erythraeans. In the twelfth year, when the Lydian army was burning the crops, the fire set in the crops, blown by a strong wind, caught the temple of Athena, called Athena of Assisus, and the temple burned to the ground. For the present no notice was taken of this, but after the army had returned to Sardis, Aliates fell ill, and as his sickness lasted longer than it should, he sent to Delphi to inquire of the oracle, either at someone's urging, or by his own wish to question the god about his sickness. But when the messengers came to Delphi, 
the Pythian priestess would not answer them before they restored the temple of Athena at Assisus in the Milesian territory, which they had burnt. I know this much to be so, because the Delphians told me. The Milesians add that Periander, son of Cypsilus, a close friend of the Thrasybulus who was then sovereign of Miletus, learned what reply the oracle had given to Aleates, and sent a messenger to tell Thrasybulus, so that his friend, forewarned, could make his plans accordingly. The Milesians say it happened so. Then, when the Delphic reply was brought to Aleates, he promptly sent a herald to Miletus, offering to make a truce with Thrasybulus and the Milesians during his rebuilding of the temple. So the envoy went to Miletus. But Thrasybulus, forewarned of the whole matter, and knowing what Aleates meant to do, devised the following plan. He brought together into the marketplace all the food in the city, from private stores and his own, and told the men of Miletus all to drink and celebrate together when he gave the word. Thrasybulus did this so that when the herald from Sardis saw a great heap of food piled up and the citizens celebrating, he would bring word of it to Aleates. And so it happened. The herald saw all this, gave Thrasybulus the message he had been instructed by the Lydian to deliver, and returned to Sardis. And this, as I learn, was the sole reason for the reconciliation. For Aleates had supposed that there was great scarcity in Miletus, and that the people were reduced to the last extremity of misery. But now on his herald's return from the town he heard an account contrary to his expectations. So presently the Lydians and Milesians ended the war, and agreed to be friends and allies, and Aleates built not one, but two temples of Athena at Assisus, and recovered from his illness. That is the story of Aleates' war against Thrasybulus and the Milesians. Periander, who disclosed the oracle's answer to Thrasybulus, was the son of Cypsilus and sovereign of Corinth. The Corinthians say, and the lesbians agree, that the most marvellous thing that happened to him in his life was the landing on Tenerus of Orion of Methymna brought there by a dolphin. This Orion was a lyre-player second to none in that age. He was the first man whom we know to compose and name the dithyram, which he afterwards taught at Corinth. They say that this Orion, who spent most of his time with Periander, wished to sail to Italy and Sicily, and that after he had made a lot of money there, he wanted to come back to Corinth. Trusting none more than the Corinthians, he hired a Corinthian vessel to carry him from Tarentum. But when they were out at sea, the crew plotted to take Orion's money and cast him overboard. Discovering this, he earnestly entreated them, asking for his life and offering them his money. But the crew would not listen to him, and told him either to kill himself and so receive burial on land, or else to jump into the sea at once. Abandoned to this extremity, Orion asked that, since they had made up their minds, 
they would let him stand on the half-deck in all his regalia and sing, and he promised that after he had sung he would do himself in. The men, pleased at the thought of hearing the best singer in the world, drew away toward the waist of the vessel from the stern. Arion, putting on all his regalia and taking his lyre, stood up on the half-deck and sang the stirring song. And when the song was finished, he threw himself into the sea as he was with all his regalia. So the crew sailed away to Corinth. But a dolphin, so the story goes, took Orion on his back and bore him to Tenerus. Landing there, he went to Corinth in his regalia, and when he arrived he related all that had happened. Periander, sceptical, kept him in confinement, letting him go nowhere, and waited for the sailors. When they arrived, they were summoned and asked what news they brought of Orion. When they were saying that he was safe in Italy, and that they had left him flourishing at Tarentum, Orion appeared before them, just as he was when he jumped from the ship. Astonished, they could no longer deny what was proved against them. This is what the Corinthians and Lesbians say, and there is a little bronze memorial of Orion on Tenerus, the figure of a man riding upon a dolphin. Aliates the Lydian, his war with the Milesians finished, died after a reign of fifty-seven years. He was the second of his family to make an offering to Delphi, after recovering from his illness, of a great silver bowl on a stand of welded iron. Among all the offerings at Delphi, this is the most worth seeing, and is the work of Glaucus the Chian, the only one of all men who discovered how to weld iron. After the death of Aliates, his son Croesus, then thirty-five years of age, came to the throne. The first Greeks whom he attacked were the Ephesians. These, besieged by him, dedicated their city to Artemis. They did this by attaching a rope to the city wall from the temple of the goddess, which stood seven stades away from the ancient city which was then besieged. These were the first whom Croesus attacked. Afterwards he made war on the Ionian and Aeolian cities in turn, upon different pretexts. He found graver charges where he could, but sometimes alleged very petty grounds of offence. Then, when he had subjugated all the Asiatic Greeks of the mainland, and made them tributary to him, he planned to build ships and attack the islanders. But when his preparations for shipbuilding were under way, either Bias of Priene or Pittacus of Mytilene, the story is told of both, came to Sardis, and, asked by Croesus for news about Hellas, put an end to the shipbuilding by giving the following answer. O king, the islanders are buying ten thousand horse, intending to march to Sardis against you. Croesus, thinking that he spoke the truth, said, Would that the gods would put this in the heads of the islanders to come on horseback against the sons of the Lydians. Then the other answered and said, O king, 
you appear to me earnestly to wish to catch the islanders riding horses on the mainland a natural wish and what else do you suppose the islanders wished as soon as they heard that you were building ships to attack them than to catch lydians on the seas so as to be revenged on you for the greeks who dwell on the mainland whom you enslaved croesus was quite pleased with this conclusion for he thought the man spoke reasonably and heeding him stopped building ships thus he made friends with the ionians inhabiting the islands as time went on croesus subjugated almost all the nations west of the halys for except the cilicians and lycians all the rest croesus held subject under him these were the lydians phrygians mysians mariandinians calibes paphlagonians the thracian thinians and bithynians carians ionians dorians aeolians and pamphylians and after these were subdued and subject to croesus in addition to the lydians all the sages from hellas who were living at that time coming in different ways came to sardis which was at the height of its prosperity and among them came solon the athenian who after making laws for the athenians at their request went abroad for ten years sailing forth to see the world he said this he did so as not to be compelled to repeal any of the laws he had made since the athenians themselves could not do that for they were bound by solemn oaths to abide for ten years by whatever laws solon should make so for that reason and to see the world solon went to visit amasis in egypt and then to croesus in sardis when he got there croesus entertained him in the palace and on the third or fourth day croesus told his attendants to show solon around his treasures and they pointed out all those things that were great and blessed after solon had seen everything and had thought about it croesus found the opportunity to say my athenian guest we have heard a lot about you because of your wisdom and of your wanderings how as one who loves learning you have travelled much of the world for the sake of seeing it so now i desire to ask you who is the most fortunate man you have seen croesus asked this question believing that he was the most fortunate of men but solon offering no flattery but keeping to the truth said o king it is tellus the athenian croesus was amazed at what he had said and replied sharply in what way do you judge tellus to be the most fortunate solon said tellus was from a prosperous city and his children were good and noble he saw children born to them all and all of these survived his life was prosperous by our standards and his death was most glorious when the athenians were fighting their neighbours in eleusis he came to help routed the enemy and died very finely the athenians buried him at public expense on the spot where he fell and gave him much honour when solon had provoked him by saying that the affairs of tellus were so fortunate 
Croesus asked who he thought was next, fully expecting to win second prize. Solon answered, Cleobis and Biton. They were of Argive's stock, had enough to live on, and on top of this had great bodily strength. Both had won prizes in the athletic contests, and this story is told about them. There was a festival of Hera in Argos, and their mother absolutely had to be conveyed to the temple by a team of oxen. But their oxen had not come back from the fields in time, so the youths took the yoke upon their own shoulders under constraint of time. They drew the wagon, with their mother riding atop it, travelling five miles until they arrived at the temple. When they had done this, and had been seen by the entire gathering, their lives came to an excellent end, and in their case the god made clear that for human beings it is a better thing to die than to live. The Argive men stood around the youths and congratulated them on their strength. The Argive women congratulated their mother for having borne such children. She was overjoyed at the feat and at the praise, so she stood before the image and prayed that the goddess might grant the best thing for man to her children Cleobis and Bytone, who had given great honour to the goddess. After this prayer they sacrificed and feasted. The youths then lay down in the temple and went to sleep, and never rose again. Death held them there. The Argives made and dedicated at Delphi statues of them as being the best of men. Thus Solon granted second place in happiness to these men. Croesus was vexed and said, my Athenian guest, do you so much despise our happiness that you do not even make us worth as much as common men? Solon replied, Croesus, you ask me about human affairs, and I know that the divine is entirely grudging and troublesome to us. In a long span of time it is possible to see many things that you do not want to, and to suffer them too. I set the limit of a man's life at seventy years. These seventy years have twenty-five thousand two hundred days, leaving out the intercalary month. But if you make every other year longer by one month, so that the seasons agree opportunely, then there are thirty-five intercalary months during the seventy years and from these months there are one thousand fifty days. Out of all these days in the seventy years, all twenty-six thousand two hundred and fifty of them, not one brings anything at all like another. So, Croesus, man is entirely chance. To me you seem to be very rich, and to be king of many people. But I cannot answer your question, before I learn that you ended your life well. The very rich man is not more fortunate than the man who has only his daily needs, unless he chances to end his life with all well. Many very rich men are unfortunate, many of moderate means are lucky. The man who is very rich but unfortunate surpasses the lucky man in only two ways, 
while the lucky surpasses the rich but unfortunate in many. The rich man is more capable of fulfilling his appetites and of bearing a great disaster that falls upon him, and it is in these ways that he surpasses the other. The lucky man is not so able to support disaster or appetite as is the rich man, but his luck keeps these things away from him, and he is free from deformity and disease, has no experience of evils, and has fine children and good looks. If, besides all this, he ends his life well, then he is the one whom you seek, the one worthy to be called fortunate. But refrain from calling him fortunate before he dies. Call him lucky. It is impossible for one who is only human to obtain all these things at the same time, just as no land is self-sufficient in what it produces. Each country has one thing, but lacks another. Whichever has the most is the best. Just so, no human being is self-sufficient. Each person has one thing, but lacks another. Whoever passes through life with the most, and then dies agreeably, is the one who, in my opinion, O King, deserves to bear this name. It is necessary to see how the end of every affair turns out, for the god promises fortune to many people, and then utterly ruins them. By saying this, Solon did not at all please Croesus, who sent him away without regard for him, but thinking him a great fool, because he ignored the present good, and told him to look to the end of every affair. But after Solon's departure, divine retribution fell heavily on Croesus, as I guess because he supposed himself to be blessed beyond all other men. Directly as he slept he had a dream which showed him the truth of the evil things which were going to happen concerning his son. He had two sons, one of whom was ruined, for he was mute, but the other, whose name was Attis, was by far the best in every way of all his peers. The dream showed this Attis to Croesus how he would lose him struck and killed by a spear of iron. So Croesus, after he awoke and considered, being frightened by the dream, brought in a wife for his son, and although Attis was accustomed to command the Lydian armies, Croesus now would not send him out on any such enterprise, while he took the javelins and spears and all such things that men use for war from the men's apartments and piled them in his storeroom, lest one should fall on his son from where it hung. Now while Croesus was occupied with the marriage of his son, a Phrygian of the royal house came to Sardis in great distress and with unclean hands. This man came to Croesus' house and asked to be purified according to the custom of the country. So Croesus purified him. The Lydians have the same manner of purification as the Greeks. And when he had done everything customary, he asked the Phrygian where he came from and who he was. "'Friend,' he said, "'who are you, and from what place in Phrygia do you come as my suppliant? "'And what man or woman have you killed?' 
"'O king,' the man answered, "'I am the son of Gordias, the son of Midas, "'and my name is Adrastus. "'I killed my brother accidentally, "'and I come here banished by my father "'and deprived of all.' "'Croesus answered, "'All of your family are my friends, "'and you have come to friends, "'where you shall lack nothing staying in my house. "'As for your misfortune, "'bear it as lightly as possible.' and you will gain most. So Adrastus lived in Croesus' house. About this same time a great monster of a boar appeared on the Mysian Olympus, who would come off that mountain and ravage the fields of the Mysians. The Mysians had gone up against him often, but they never did him any harm, but were hurt by him themselves. At last they sent messengers to Croesus with this message. O king, a great monster of a boar has appeared in the land who is destroying our fields. For all our attempts we cannot kill him. So now we ask you to send your son and chosen young men and dogs with us so that we may drive him out of the country. Such was their request but Croesus remembered the prophecy of his dream and answered them thus, Do not mention my son again. I will not send him with you. He is newly married, and that is his present concern. But I will send chosen Lydians and all the huntsmen, and I will tell those who go to be as eager as possible to help you to drive the beast out of the country. End of Book One Part 2 Recording by Graham Redman